Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I am joined by Kerry Jones, a lead psychotherapist in the treatment of eating disorders and the CEO and one of the founders of ORI. ORI is a specialist private clinic for individuals over the age of 16 to receive specialist day patient treatment for anorexia, bulimia and binge eating disorder. Hello Kerry. Hi Hannah, thank you very much for having me. Oh no, it's great to have, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Yes, and you? Yeah, yeah, I'm really good, thank you. I'm very, very excited to talk to you, like I've already said. Um, I'm a real big fan of the work you do at Ori, so I feel very privileged that you wanted to come on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us. So I wanted to start off today to kind of get a bit of background from you, if that was okay. So if, I wondered if you wanted to explain why you set up Ori to start with. Yeah, sure. So... Um, So as you mentioned, I'm a psychotherapist by training and I've been working with people with eating disorders for nearly 20 years now. And yeah, I feel quite old saying that. Uh, It's quite shocking when you realise you can say that actually. And yeah, so I started sort of in the beginning working with people in private practice um, and then worked alongside um, colleagues in the NHS and they were working with a daycare programme and also with people in the community, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps on a more of an outpatient basis. And then I went to work on an inpatient ward and I spent quite a long time there doing that. And what I saw was some really incredible recoveries that took place during those inpatient stays. And often I felt that the patients, as we called them, would come into hospital and they would often have to spend quite a lot of time with us in hospital mm. for all sorts of reasons, sometimes because they were really you know, physically unwell and they really needed that support, but sometimes because perhaps they weren't quite ready to get out of a hospital setting and go and just see um, a therapist once a week or a dietitian sure. once a week. And they needed this sort of something in the middle. And whilst I was aware that daycare services existed and, and do exist throughout the NHS and, and you know they provide some really excellent daycare, I was really conscious that for a lot of people they, they didn't have access to daycare. And so really I felt that what I would like to be able to provide is a is a setting where people could come they could access the daycare for as long as they needed it and that might be different depending on you know what was bringing them to daycare at that point and we would then be able to kind of work with them in a way that allowed them to step down as they felt more and more in kind of confident in their own recoveries Um, and so I left my inpatient post and um, began the job of setting up Ori. Wow. 
I mean, that must have been quite a big step to take going from kind of having, I guess, that secure job in the NHS to then going your own way. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of, yeah, it was definitely a big sort of sharp intake of breath that I took as I left. (laughs) I was really, really lucky that I have worked alongside some fantastic colleagues over the years. And I was, you know, I've been talking to them, you know, as much as it was something that I kind of went ahead and did initially is very much like an idea that I share with many people and so you know Ori is by definition a community and it was very much a community that put Ori together so you know I started speaking to clients or patients as we called them like I said who'd perhaps had worked with over the years they gave us lots and lots myself and Maxine my colleague who's our director of clinical services Max and I met with lots of different patients clients who told us what what it should be, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. We met with carers and loved ones who equally told us what we should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and I talked to lots and lots of clinicians and said, you know, what what works? You know, what have you seen? What do you think we need more of? And that's really how we built built the kind of template for Ori. And then, you know, collectively we started to build from there. Fantastic. And is it what is it that makes Ori different to the NHS service? Is it that you can come for as long as you want or are there specific things that you do that are different? I guess probably, you know, one of the differences that I guess I would say is quite sort of central to Ori is that um, we are able to work with clients kind of at the point that they need support so because they're able to fund it themselves you know they they're able to make that sort of autonomous decision to come into treatment and I recognize that that's really difficult in an NHS service because people may feel ready for treatment but not be able to access it for all sorts of reasons or there's a helicopter flying by which is probably not very good for this recording (laughs) the life (laughs) Um, of London the life of London Um, yeah so either either that or you know perhaps it's difficult for them to access treatment because they they don't feel that they want it but they're being very heavily encouraged into it and again we don't have that kind of pressure on the service at Ori you know we we don't use the mental health act for example here and so there is a different sort of agency I think in terms of people coming into treatment at Ori yeah I think you're so right in that in that it kind of has to be something that people want to do I mean and I guess it depends on the sort of where somebody is with their like stability of their eating disorder you know sometimes someone could be in a very unstable position and you have to just you know you need to care for them because of the condition Mm -hmm. they're in but I think a lot of the time in order to sort of I've always seen it that in order to get on that path of recovery it has to be a personal choice not something that you know you're either told by the doctor or your parents or something that that's what needs to happen. Yeah I think right I think you know if you can get a collaborative relationship with somebody where you know together you're thinking about why this might be helpful right now what you might need from treatment right now how we can do this together then of course the process is going to feel a lot a lot more manageable than if somebody's saying you have got to do this but I like you I recognize and have been in that situation with people where you know there is absolutely a time and a place where sometimes you do have to step in and and you know I think that happens quite often during treatment you know one of the things I often talk to people about and the team will talk to people about is you sometimes need kind of well eyes when your eyes are perhaps clouded by yeah. the lens of the eating disorder and you know, hopefully through a trusting relationship with the people that you're working with, 
you can sort of trust those eyes a little bit and go, all right, well, if you are thinking that, maybe you've got a point or mm. I don't like it, but maybe you've got, there's something in that, you know? But that takes time to kind of cultivate and build that relationship. And I do think one of the big things that Ori is able to do and isn't always as possible in other settings is provide that consistency, you know, so, you know, you have that opportunity to keep coming back um, if you need to and the team are still there and it's the same team and you you know they know you and you know them and that's what's really important mm, absolutely yeah so I did a bit of reading around the subject found a report that Beat did in 2019 saying that only 33% of UK eating disorder services provided a sort of a similar service to what you do in the intensive daycare or home-based treatments and the research has shown that there's better outcomes, I think, from that sort of treatment. And I wondered if you could kind of just explain how you provide that daycare, home-based treatment for your clients. Well, the way that we provide treatment is by essentially, as I said, providing what we call a step-down model. So clients, clients coming to Ori are likely to require a more intensive Um, support by definition so you've probably tried some outpatient support and it hasn't been quite enough or perhaps you've had a period of inpatient treatment and you're ready to step out but you're not quite ready to go to the outpatient so we are sort of by definition a more intensive program Um, and clients typically come to us between three and five days a week depending on where they're starting in their recovery. And their day will consist of different group therapies. So we have a very much a therapeutic community that sits at the core of Ori's treatment. Um, and you might be accessing groups doing work on body image or particular kind of thinking patterns and, or styles. We might be working through certain relational dynamics, very much kind of responding to the, the group and the group's needs on that day. And then you would also have an individual therapist who you would see on a weekly basis. You'd have an individual dietitian who you would see on a fortnightly basis and an individual occupational therapist who you would see on a fortnightly basis. So a very kind of, like I say, intensive therapeutic model at the core of your treatment. And then we have fantastic mental health nurse and a general nurse who are looking after your sort of physical well-being, who are thinking about your sort of psychological recovery. We have a great consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Mirando, who oversees all of our clients as they come into treatment. Um, and then we have lots of other kind of therapies and supports, whether it's yoga, mindfulness, meditation, um, more kind of spiritual exploration for certain clients, mm-hmm. if, if that's something that they want to sort of expand. So, yeah, a really kind of dynamic approach, really, to recovery. Yeah. I think that's fantastic and I think that's one thing I really like about Ori is that it's sort of you don't have that like one size fits all. I think other you know sort of the NHS based treatments can sort of be a one size fits all because I think you know like you said they've you're not paying for that treatment it's sort of they've they've got that clear set of what happens and with the limited funding it can be difficult to offer lots of different treatments and the thing I wanted to ask was so I, I obviously on your website it says you do anorexia bulimia and binge eating disorder and I wanted to ask you know do you have sort of set things for each eating disorder or is it sort of what that patient needs there and then that's what is provided um that's a really good question there are (laughs) it's we don't have a a sort of set way of working with anybody you know I always say you know I've met a lot of people with eating disorders but I've never met an eating disorder Mm -hmm. um you know I've met a lot of people over the last 20 years 
and, and we work with people. So I would say that, you know, there are certain things that you and everybody listening to this podcast, I imagine, would recognise are familiar characteristics to those different eating disorders that you've just named. And so, yes, we would be thinking about menu planning. And if we're working with somebody who's more restrictive, then we're going to be thinking about weight recovery and what does that look like and how are we supporting somebody into that. If we're working with somebody with a binge eating disorder, we're going to be looking at kind of the patterns around those binges. We're going to be thinking about symptom interruption. We're going to be looking at structure and organizing, you know, their days, maybe through an OT lens, but also back through their individual therapy. So there are certain guides, if you like, to each illness that we might mm. be working with. Um, but what we would tend to then do is really understand kind of that person. So, for example, when people come to Ori, they have a an intake assessment and it lasts about two, two and a half hours and they meet with our admissions manager Ivana and she takes a full history and she really spends some time with them and then as a team we kind of talk that through and we think together about what we're hearing and then we put a treatment plan together that's a recommendation and then we kind of hone that and refine that with the individual and then they come into treatment. So it's really about working out what is it that's going on for this person and we have a structure, you know, we have structured groups, we have a timetable, we have certain things that are happening each week, mm. um, but we recognise, oh, you know, this group this week are really working through, I don't know, maybe there's anger around or there's really strong resistance around. And so then we'll really tailor the groups to explore that throughout that week. And then we're able to be more responsive in the treatment that we offer. Is it difficult? Is there sometimes some difficulties with clients maybe, I don't know, picking up behaviours or seeing other things in the group therapy that might complicate their treatment process? Yeah, I think what we do here, because we work very much as a therapeutic community, is we're constantly working with the dynamics that are coming Mm -hmm. up through the groups and through the process. So you know, we again, we know that with certain um, eating disorders, there can be really sort of strong, let's say, competitive aspects or comparative net aspects that somebody might feel. Um, and, you know, I'm reminded of a group that um, was running a couple of weeks ago, and one of the clients felt, you know, really, really, they're really struggling with that comparative need mm-hmm. um, and, and looking alongside. And, and one of the things that was really powerful is that they were really able to name that in the group because they really felt this level of safety to go there. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't say, you can't talk about that here. Yeah. Or, and, and, and people have fed back to me that they've been in group settings. And I understand why, but, you know, you're not allowed to talk about that because it could be triggering for another. And so we are respectful in that process, but we'll talk that through. Mm-hmm. So we'll do the sort of safety setting within the group so that people do feel that they can bring it and they'll understand how to bring that in a way that feels safe for them and for others. And we'll check that out in the group as we're going. So, you know, there's lots of expertise, both in the people leading the groups, but also in the group itself to know how to start to keep itself safe. Mm. And that's that's recovery, you know. Yeah. How do I build a way of living that keeps me safe so that I know when I'm going to hit the bumps in the road and I feel safe in them? Yeah, and that's that's exactly something I was just going to say is that it's always something I've seen as maybe a, a drawback from the inpatient process is that you're not necessarily exposed to, like, quote-unquote, normal life as such. And I think, mm. you know, that's maybe why a lot of people then do relapse when they're in that inpatient setting because it's very routine orientated you don't have 
people you know you've not got normal life stresses kind of thing but then having that group setting in a day patient I think it's fantastic because it allows you to build those coping mechanisms for when you know you're out in the shop and someone says something like you know diet orientated or whatever you've then built those coping mechanisms to think I don't need to let that affect me I know what I need to do in this situation and I can work through it which I think that is that's such a key aspect to recovery yeah I think you're right I think you know again there are times when I think in recovery or in the illness when you you kind of need to step out of life completely because it's too much you know on a system level you you can't tolerate it and so that's when inpatient is really important Mm -hmm. because it gives you that protection you know like the bubble if you like that some Mm -hmm. people describe it as but at some point you're right you need to transition back out into everyday life and you need to feel that you are able to kind of manage it's interesting I'm reminded a client was talking to me the other week and they started in a new position and they were saying to me it was great and I really enjoyed it the real difficult moment was when there was a group of my colleagues and I standing around and two of them announced that they were going on the 5-2 diet. And this really woke something up for this person. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we were able to kind of really process that through and really think it through. But what they recognised was, but I remember that group when we talked about Mm -hmm. and we all brought in a bunch of magazines and we looked at them and we talked through what was on them and what they were kind of bringing up, etc., And so they were able to directly recognize that and take themselves back and think, okay, what did we talk about in that, you know, and do Mm -hmm. some grounding work. And what they recognized was just politely excused myself from the conversation, just sort of said, oh, I've completely forgotten. I need to give so-and-so a call and nipped off Mm. because they felt like they didn't have the shock of it and then get caught in it. So Mm -hmm. they were able to kind of, you know, slow it down. You know, space is something we always look at. Pace is the other thing we look at get themselves away from it and it's a really important point yeah absolutely and just in terms of the I think we've discussed it a little bit the differences between inpatient and the day patient that you do but I've read quite a lot about the sort of differences between anorexia and bulimia for inpatient to day patient things such as you know they have the same sort of treatment outcomes but people tend to accept the treatment in a day patient setting more. And obviously there's the the reduced length of hospital stay, reduced cost, but also the family feeling a lot more empowered. And so I've kind of got two questions. So I'll start with the first one. Is there any research (laughs) sort of to show the difference for patients with binge eating disorder? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things we've noticed actually is within our online programme, we have had quite a number of clients who have been accessing um, the online treatment program for binge eating disorder. And what they are describing fairly regularly now is that they are finding the experience of being in a group, of being online, not having their body alongside another body, really helps them to regulate into the therapy Mm-hmm. And that almost the byproduct of that is they are then finding an increased sort of, you know, we think about affect regulation, they're thinking about an increased sort of state of sort of homeostasis within themselves so that they are then increasingly comfortable to be out in the community alongside other people. So some of that initial kind of 
anxiety that is felt particularly coming into a daycare setting in person where you may be alongside people with more restrictive eating disorders who perhaps are struggling you know in a different way with their body presentation that they're able to kind of do the therapy in a way and I think that's been really powerful. I think that's such an important point to make. Um, I think there's quite a few stigmas associated with binge eating disorder with regards to body shape and size. And also, you know, I've done a bit of research myself in binge eating disorder and sort of putting a treatment pathway together. And it often came up that people felt uncomfortable in that group setting because of their body. So having that online service must be really invaluable for them. And is that something you started because of COVID or had you thought of doing that anyway? We'd thought of doing it, and the truth is that it was on the list that was long of things that we want to do. One of the things I often say here is that we've got so many fantastic members of the team who've got so many brilliant ideas for things that we need to do (laughs) that we're going to be going for a really long time to just try and get through the list. Um, So it was very much on our list. And we actually just... Just as COVID hit, we um, were planning to launch a binge eating disorder program with some colleagues of ours who run a, um, an outpatient service. Mm-hmm. So we had this great plan in place and then obviously everything hit and we had to change it. So one of the things that we've noticed, and I think, you know, um, Beats did some fantastic work for Eating Disorder Awareness Week this year, mm-hmm. looking at binge eating disorder in terms of kind of really putting that on the agenda to talk about. Um, we've seen a lot more people reaching out for support for their binge eating disorder and you know whether there's any correlation between the fact that that's now happening online Mm -hmm. whether there's a correlation with lockdown I don't have sufficient information just yet to be able to say but we've seen that anecdotally Mm. um, and we have a lot of clients accessing our our program for and and interestingly doing a blend and this is the other thing that's been great about having the online program and in person so you know they may be accessing us online say two days a week and then coming in person two days a week oh wow and again you know sort of as you were talking about then really managing some of those difficult feelings that are around also kind of coming into the community and eating together and sharing food Mm. with other people, building up that confidence to eat in front of others, which we know can be a really real struggle for people. Mm. And that's been really powerful. And then doing the real kind of in-action OT work of nipping down to Tesco's and, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. spending some time in the store and managing those triggers around some of those sort of responses to certain foods, etc. Been really, really powerful. Yeah. And how, so how do you manage those sorts of things if it's on the online programme, such as eating in front of other people and going to the shop? Are they things that maybe aren't covered when you do the online programme or do you have other ways of uh, challenging those behaviours? Well, we do have other ways because of the joys of technology. <laughs> <We're very> creative. <laughs> and I have to say, I can't take all the credit for this. So we, we run our meal, meals online. So we have snacks and mm-hmm. lunch online. Um, and we run that exactly like we do in the building. So everybody has a menu plan and everybody brings their meal to the group and we eat together and we process together. Mm-hmm. The brilliant thing that um, our OTs have been doing is like using Zoom or FaceTime <laughs> or something like that. And they literally will go shopping. Or they, oh, that's and I amazing. Say, they're just I, my thing is they're nosy right so they're like well take me around your house I'm like you just wanted to see the house or the dog or whatever uh, but they tell me it's all in you know you know it's all professional but yeah so that's great so they can actually really get into somebody's kitchen they can see mm. how things are set up 
you know, can really do some important environmental work in people's bedrooms, you know, looking at creating safe spaces in people's houses. And, and as I say, have your OT session, right, you're going to ring me when you get to the shop and we're going to go around the shop together yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. So it's been really, really responsive really creative so yeah it's been great actually i think that's amazing it's crazy the things that you can do online mm -hmm. i think like this time last year well this time last year we were all panicking because we'd just started the pandemic but you know 18 months ago you would have never thought of doing things like this and i think it's just opened so many possibilities do you think in terms of binge eating disorder that it's i feel like since maybe not since the eating disorder awareness week but especially around then i feel like people have been sort of opening up more about their experiences with binge eating disorder and i think the more people talk about it, it then gives other people confidence do you think that could possibly be one reason you're seeing more people maybe because they're they've become more aware of their issues or they're just feeling a bit more comfortable so i think there's also there's, i mean there's a lot of stigmas for eating disorders anyway but i think binge eating mm. disorder there's a lot of questions that people have that maybe they don't feel comfortable to ask and that's just left people that are struggling with binge eating sort of feeling a little bit you know left in the dark but do you think that sort of opening up of the conversation has helped people to come forward massively and I think one of the things I hear which which is why I'm so grateful for, to the fact that we're now having these conversations mm -hmm. is people say and I tell you, if I had a pound for every time someone had said this to me, I'd be a rich woman. Um, <laughs> but um, people saying to me, I've, I've had this problem for such a long time and I thought it was just me. I oh. thought I was lazy. I thought, you know, why, what's wrong with me? Why can't mm -hmm. I do what everybody else can do? They didn't recognise that it was a problem, that it was yeah. an illness, that it, that it wasn't that they had some kind of deficit. And that, I mean, it breaks my heart every time I hear somebody say it. But I then feel immensely grateful to, you know, people like yourself or the kind of wider community who are really starting to have these conversations and, mm -hmm. and giving permission for people to be curious and say, well, is that what's going on with me then? Yeah. You know, that, that feels familiar to me. I have those sorts of difficulties. I didn't realize that that wasn't just some sort of weakness that I have, mm -hmm. that actually, and also really importantly, that maybe there's something I can do about it. Maybe I yeah. can get help for this that I, I don't have to struggle with this on my own, that I can ease some of the shame. Yeah, it's, it's been immense. And I think the other really important thing that started to happen in the conversation, more generally about eating disorders, is that, you know, as we move them out of either purely a body-based illness mm -hmm. that's represented by the size of a body, or purely by a gender or culturally based illness, i.e. you are a white middle-class female who's probably 15 years old, you know, once we start to dispel those, you know, quite frankly, ridiculous myths about an eating disorder and recognize that eating disorders come from adverse experiences in life, that they are responsive mechanisms to help us cope, mm. that they are things that happen in struggle well, suddenly you look at the world and you think, well, there's a whole lot of people who are struggling. Yeah. So why wouldn't there be more people with an eating disorder? Why wouldn't that be something that's happening more routinely? You know. So again, I think that starts to dispel this myth somehow mm -hmm. that they are whatever. I, I'm not even going to repeat the things I've heard, the myths, because I find them so offensive. But yeah. you know what I mean? I think we get into the realities that that is why so many people are struggling with eating disorders, mm -hmm. because life's hard. Yeah.
I think you're so right. There are so many stigmas that that aren't true in the slightest. And I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit and ask your opinion of this. But I've spoken to a lot of people recently and, you know, it's great when you're in the circle that we're in and you know you're really trying to build that awareness of eating disorders it does feel like you're making leaps and bounds um you know of of progress but then Mm -hmm. actually you know I still hear stories from people that aren't necessary in the circle uh, of the stigmas and the myths are still there so obviously it's one thing that is absolutely fantastic is people coming forward and sharing their stories or being more open about things but how do you think that we get to those people that, you know, are core people that need to know about eating disorders, but still have these sort of misconceptions in their mind and a misunderstanding that then is actually like affecting the, the help patients are getting? I think I'm happy for you to put me on the spot. <laughs> I think it's a, <laughs> good. Really, it's a good spot to be put on. Um, I think that what we... So personally, I think it's something that I've done quite a lot of reflection on. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've had to sort of really challenge myself with is bravery. Um, Because I think sometimes, you know, I could be part of a conversation or I hear a throwaway comment that somebody makes. Mm -hmm. And perhaps historically, I would feel like, oh, I don't like that. But I don't quite know what to say. Or I feel like I'm sort of having to really sort of put myself out there and that feels a bit awkward and increasingly I feel like I don't have a choice in that that I'm accountable to all the people that I have sat opposite over the years or sat alongside over the years you know who have been very generous in letting me kind of be part of their recovery so I think actually I owe it to them to say something and so I do think it's speaking out it's challenging people it's doing it in a way that's not hostile Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important thing is saying, I'm really curious about why you think that, sure. you know, what, what is it that comes up for you when you see somebody who you're describing in that way? Or what is it that makes you think that about somebody? Tell me your rationale, because mm-hmm. as soon as you get under the skin of that with people, they, they're thrown, they're kind mm-hmm. of, you know, they're like, well, actually, I don't know. I just think it because, or actually now you say that, hmm. You know, well, would you say this about a person? No. So why would you focus on their weight or their body or something to do with their shape? Like, why is that okay for you? So I think it's calling it out. Mm -hmm. And then I think we've got a big job around education to do. I think, you know, lots of parts of our medical system still need education. And again, they need support because it's really easy for us to condemn the GP who turns you away and tells you you'll grow out of it. Um, when that GP has grown up in a culture and a society that has told them you'll grow out, you know, they'll grow out of it, just continue to, you know. So again, we need to educate, we need to be brave and keep having difficult, uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. I think brave voices, the people who who are expert by experience, who have lived it, speaking out and sharing. I, I hear lots of conversations whereby I think people feel that somehow they're being judged when they, when they share those experiences and that, that silences them again. Mm. Um, so I think it's then our job to come alongside those people and to sort of hold them up and say, you know what, we're there, we'll argue with you, you know, we'll continue to support you. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's lots of talking, which as you can probably tell is something I quite like doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can tell, so do I. Yeah, <laughs> One of great. my favourite things. Um, <laughs> but no, I think you're completely right. And I really like how you described it at the end there, because 
I think it is about being a community together and I think that's one thing you know I've definitely felt through doing this podcast um, and you know like being on Instagram and stuff is there is a real strong community of people that are working together to get eating disorders heard but I, I think it's a fantastic community of people all with the same sort of end point in mind which I think is just completely brilliant so the other question that I had was sort of the response you've had from parents and carers with regards to the day patient service whether that's if they've experienced also an inpatient service and what their response has been or I guess just how they've felt that you know what their feelings have been around the day patient service. One of the things that a lot of carers say to us is they find it really difficult when their loved one is in treatment because they don't know what's going on they feel really cut off And obviously, we need to respect the individual in that process and ensure that their needs are held very centrally in their treatment. But I think part of that is really thinking with that person about, you know, who's in your team, Mm. who makes up your village, because (laughs) an eating disorder is really hard to recover from in isolation. So if we can help kind of address maybe some of the more difficult dynamics in relationships, then we think that's part of, you know, the role of the treatment Mm -hmm. to look at that. So we have a great family therapist, Karen Carberry, who works um, with all of our families, whether you're 16 or 60. Um, She has an initial meeting with everybody and then sort of, you know, meets at whatever regularity feels appropriate if the client would like to do that. We have a carers group that meets on a monthly basis and that's really an opportunity for people just to come together and share experiences and and just talk about what's happening for them. And we have constant dialogue with carers, again, with with consent from our clients. We recognise that it is their treatment as a fundamentally sort of, you know, that's important. But to just be able to sort of touch base... Paula, one of our dietitians, um, it's not uncommon for her to, you know, have a quick five-minute call with one of the parents and, the, you know, it's a younger person, talk about the menu plan mm-hmm. or someone's other half if, you know, they're planning a surprise meal out, you know, and things like that. So, again, it's, it's all about dialogue and, and keeping them as involved as we can, really. Yeah. Transparency is a big theme at Ori. So, you know, we, we put it out there. So we're all about put your menu plan on the fridge. It's just a menu plan. Mm-hmm. You know, if you need to go shopping and you need some support in the supermarket, who are you going to ask to take you and who are you going to ask to help you with that? So again, it's just about building all those relationships. Yeah. And I, th- I would assume that something that's very good about the day programme is that people stay with their families. Uh, you know in inpatient I think it would be so difficult because you're sort of taken out of that home environment maybe don't get to see your family every day whereas the day patient keeps you integrated you can still carry on seeing your friends you still get to have meals with your family so I guess it's it's also practicing those normal life behaviors which I think is so important yeah agreed and what we used to do pre-covid when we were allowed (laughs) to see people um it wasn't uncommon for parents or friends boyfriends girlfriends whatever just to drop in Mm -hmm. um and so they would come and have lunch or you know they would come by and they'd do snacks together and things like that so they're practicing and you're right i think one of the things that happens around food is as we know it's there can be an immense amount of tension around food and so we do all we can to kind of make that a more smooth and comfortable process and we we do things like portion clinics for example where 
people come in and we go, right, this is a bowl of pasta, this is a bowl of rice, and we take photographs and we talk about a spoonful of this and a scoop of that as opposed to, you know, measurements, etc. Um, so again, we're just helping people f to feel more confident. I think a big part of it for families from what they've shared with us is feeling like they know what to do. Yeah. And so the first thing that we often say is, you're going to get this wrong. <laughs> so everybody needs to get ready for it to go wrong because yeah. that's fine. Because as soon as everybody's trying to get it right, you're all on eggshells. So mm. let's just accept that it's going to go wrong. And then how are we going to resolve it when it does go wrong? Mm -hmm. and what are you going to need to hear and what are you going to need to hear and then we start the conversation and so again it's lots of preparation lots of talking um, and just lots of being available consistency is is such a key theme at Ori we, mm -hmm. you know we talk a lot about consistency yeah I think I think that honestly sounds brilliant and just integrating everybody I don't think that anybody means for this to happen but often it can be put on the carers as their sort of fault in a way you know I think that's just another stigma that is in eating disorders but I think by you working to integrate family so much I think it really opens up that conversation to have you know it isn't your fault and like you said you are going to get things wrong you don't need to have the answer you literally just need to have a shoulder to cry on sometimes and you know a bit of support and distraction when needed and I think that yeah I think that's so important to have everybody involved rather than just the person that's struggling yeah I think you're absolutely right and and I, I, I think it's an important recognition that you know families don't cause eating disorders <laughs> you know <laughs> if if they did in a weird way that would be easier we'd be like oh yeah. right well that's the thing we got to fix then mm. and then it would all be resolved <laughs> you know it's so much more complex than that and you know as we referenced earlier you know there are lots of adverse experiences that happen to us in life that cause for some people the solution to be found mm -hmm. you know in inverted commas in the eating disorder and so that's what we're trying to really resolve. And yes, dynamics can get difficult, relationships can get tense. But, you know, again, we need to talk in the reality that sometimes there are real difficulties that happen. Mm -hmm. So then it's about how do we repair and how do we come alongside, how do we support? But if people are coming feeling like I am at fault, I am to blame, well, you're going to walk in with every defense you've got up. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, that's not going to get us anywhere. So it is very much about coming together, compassionately thinking together, being curious together, and then working it through. And just something else that I wanted to talk about with you, and you, you mentioned it at the start in that when someone comes to Ori, it, something that's so great is that because they are funding it themselves, they're able to get it when they need it. So there's obviously been quite a lot of research showing the early intervention, and I think you could you know you could just kind of pluck that out of thin air that catching something like this an eating disorder early is, is probably better than letting it um, linger but why is it so important to you as a service at Ori that you do help people as soon as they you know come to you for help? Well I think you've pretty much summed it up I mean <laughs> you know why would you leave somebody in pain for any longer than you need to? Yeah. I, you wouldn't you don't routinely and so I think it's it's a great struggle for the eating disorder community as a whole you know from a clinician perspective you know I know that um, you know my colleagues and friends who work in the NHS find it deeply frustrating that they can't help more people that they have to work within the limitations that the system you know the political system yeah 
puts on them it's not the clinician's desire to turn anybody away like you don't turn up in the world as a clinician if you aren't really in it to help people no. it's you know so I think yeah I, I think from for us at Ori it's really important that we recognize that people are reaching out for help and at the point they reach out for help we need to hear it you know it doesn't mean that everybody who comes to Ori we can help sometimes they do need more intensive treatment than we can provide and sometimes they don't need as intensive treatment as we provide mm. and you know we signpost people and say listen try this first and this mm -hmm. this might be what you need right now you know that's really critical for us but when people do reach out it is about being responsive mm -hmm. and you know, I think the message that anybody who takes that incredibly courageous step to recognise that something's not quite right here, I don't know what it is, but I know I'm not okay, they are they need to be met with a kind of open hand, you know, that says, Okay, well, you know, let's let's see what we can do together. Hitting a door and told to go away and being invited to go work that out for yourself. I, I just yeah, it's hard. I think that's yeah. a really difficult I think anybody getting that experience with any condition, yeah, with any, you know, just even if you, I don't know, you've had a really rotten day and you say to someone, I've had a really bad day and they're like, yeah, whatever. You're yeah. just going to think, sort oh, charming. <laughs> yeah, sort yourself out. I mean, we don't do that to human beings. So no. yeah, I think it's about how we, how we respond is, yeah, I think it's critical really. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really good that you highlighted there about the fact that it's not the individual clinician, because I don't think anybody thinks that it is in the slightest, but I think there's become a bit of a rhetoric against, or, you know, the NHS, it's, it just keeps pushing people away when they actually need support. And I think it's really important that we recognise that it's not one individual or it's not, you know, one certain person doing that. It is the way that the service is provided and unfortunately the funding isn't there and it's mm. it's a really difficult situation and I can and I can imagine you know I've got friends that work in the NHS and they they get so frustrated and I just can't imagine how difficult it must be to to visibly be able to see that someone needs help but you're just not able to provide it yeah I think you're absolutely right. And the rigidity then that we build into our systems, particularly when we're dealing with a presentation like an eating disorder, mm -hmm. kind of often sort of mirrors the rigidity that that person is experiencing. Yeah. And as clinicians, we don't want to reinforce that. Mm -hmm. You know, we want the flexibility. We want to be able to sort of respond dynamically to people. And so when you're then literally having to look at people through a certain kind of lens and say, right, well, you meet this criteria and you don't meet this criteria, yeah. it is heartbreaking, you know, it's, and it's a real struggle, a real mm -hmm. struggle to have to do that. But, you know, as clinicians, you do have to sometimes make really difficult decisions and that's, and that's you know, that triaging, that kind of who does and who doesn't is a tough job. And I have tremendous respect for people who do that. And I know it's really hard for the individual who meets that system and I get where the anger comes from. But I think you're right. I think we have to be really careful that the rhetoric that then doesn't get pushed out again in our responsibility and the conversations that we're having as a community, we need to be ensuring that when that message goes out into the press or wherever, you know, that they're hearing that collective message, which, which is you know, we want this too, <laughs> you know, yeah. this is what we're all working towards. We want people in treatment, the more the better, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we want. And we want that for, in the nicest possible way, I always say to people, for as short a period as possible, Yeah. because we want people getting back on with their lives. So the quicker we can get in, the quicker we can do the work, and the shorter the time that someone's going to be in treatment. That's the result that everybody mm. is working for. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And what sort of level do you get people up to at Ori? Is it sort of, you know, a manageable state where you feel like they can go their own way or is it they can be with you for as long as they possibly want? If they wanted to, they could be there forever. I mean, you just said as short um, as possible, so you probably wouldn't advise them to be there forever. <laughs> <laughs> if they were here forever, I'd feel that we probably ought to have them on the payroll because um, <laughs> I might feel a bit wrong. Yeah, certainly not forever. I think we recognise that treatment is treatment and that Ori is something in our minds that you, you pass through and either, as I say, you're coming from or going to a different type of treatment. I think what I would say is that... For a lot of people, they need to be able to come and like put it down, like know that they've arrived somewhere and that they can be there for the time that they need to be there. And that's going to be very different depending on what your goals are for treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, some people want full recovery and that involves a longer period of time. And some people are coming to do a certain piece of work mm-hmm. that there's something that they you know a particular goal that they want to kind of work through and achieve so it is it is very varied on that basis we so we don't have fixed points that people need to get to sure. either way um yeah it's very much more a responsive kind of process yeah i think that's really good i think that just um sort of amplifies the individuality that you have at ori which i think uh, like i asked you at the the start what makes ori difference i think to me the biggest difference for you is that it is just you see the person like you say as the person not the eating disorder and treat that person for their individualities rather than the set eating disorder they've been diagnosed with so that is the questions I have one question that I've been asking everybody at the end and that is if somebody's listening think they could potentially need help what would be your advice for somebody that is requiring support for an eating disorder my advice is if you have a feeling that something isn't right talk to somebody about it you know it's it's as simple as that. And I know that isn't simple because I know so much comes up in the way of that. But if we overcomplicate that, then we, we lose our sort of direction and our track. So if, if you're worried about yourself or you're worried about somebody that you care for, talk. You know, I, I'm a big believer in talking. And, and also kind of have that reassurance that there is support there, that things change. The majority of people who suffer with an eating disorder get well. You know, that, that's the really important message that again, I think gets lost in some of the rhetoric. So if you're worried, talk to someone. There's lots of great support. If you want to do that anonymously, you can speak mm-hmm. to people like Beat who have a fantastic support helpline. Talk to a good friend, somebody who, who you trust. Speak to your GP and know that sometimes that can be a difficult process, but you know it is it is an option and and get in touch with you know good good treatment um whether that's a therapist whether that's a treatment team you know reach out yeah absolutely Mm. well thank you kerry it's been a pleasure to talk to you today and yeah thank you for sharing so much insight into the work that you do at ori well thank you so much for having me i've really loved talking to you so thank you (laughs) I feel really lucky to have been able to have that conversation with Kerry and understand how treatment is personalised at Ori. I think we've got a lot to learn about the treatment, but I think we also need to appreciate the fact that it can be really difficult to have that personalised treatment. 
Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Lorna Collins, who has an absolutely incredible story regarding her journey from having a brain aneurysm to being sectioned on a psychiatric ward for many years with little support from her eating disorder and how she found creativity, which really helped her in her recovery and is still helping her today. Recovery is a synonym for creativity because when I paint or I write or take photographs or dance, or play, I am, I open a means of expression. So I express who I am, my moment, this is who I am, this is what I want to say. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so please be sure to subscribe. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may be struggling at the moment. Not only those with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire others to embark their recovery journey. For further support, please visit the Beat or the First Steps website, or speak to your local GP. See you next week. Bye!